And welcome back to Lower Decks, a Star Trek podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. Really, I am. I'm really Glenn McDorman. I'm definitely not just being controlled by Valerie through some kind of uh, neural stimulator that's hooked up to my cerebellum. Yeah, and you're also definitely not Iggy Pop. <laughs> Though, I've definitely had that dream. <laughs> And I'm Valerie Hoagland, and and you can't see it, but I brought into the recording studio, otherwise known as my bedroom today, um, a a blue electric whip um, and a forehead (laughs) tattoo that mysteriously will disappear the next time you see me. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So we are here today to talk about the Magnificent Ferengi, which is the 10th episode of season six of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. This episode aired for the first time on December 17th, 1997. It was written by Ira Stephen Bear and Hans Beimler and directed by Chip Chalmers. And this episode is the last of three that were commissioned by a really very, very generous Patreon supporter. We've already covered the Deep Space Nine episodes, Rocks and Shoals and Treachery, Faith and the Great River. We actually plan on finishing up this episode today with a discussion about the elements that link those three episodes. I'm really looking forward to having that conversation uh, when we get to the end. But before we do that, before we do the episode recap, uh, we just want to say thank Thank you again for this commission. This has been a lot of fun and it really has been so generous of you. Yes, thank you very much. This is uh, much more concentrated exposure to Keevan um, than than I thought that I would ever have. But I actually do kind of like him. I, I'm sad about sad about his fate in this arc. Very sad, actually. It's incredibly depressing. I mean, I think he's still just walking around. So yeah, it's pretty. Uh, we'll have more to say about that. But it, it did. I mean, Hard to express uh, empathy for Keevan um, after <laughs> Rocks and Shoals, but alas, I found some. Uh, but no, this has been so fun. And, you know, you're going to make us talk about Ferengi, which is uh, going to be quite the task today. So I think we should just get into it. Right. Well, we begin at a bar. It's Quark's bar. And the establishing shot for this episode, I think, is really awesome. There's a a woman with this like massive martini glass that just looks uh, amazing. Like, I want these martini glasses. But the point here is actually not the martini glasses. It's, in fact, some crates. There are some dudes bringing in some crates. And Quark gets everyone's attention. And he announces that he has managed to get his hands on a shipment of syrup of squill. And now, of course, right, everyone loves syrup of squill. But the thing is that there hasn't been any in months because there's been a drought on the planet where squill grows. Except Quark has discovered that there is not actually any drought. The agricultural consortium on this planet is withholding syrup of squill from the market in order to drive up the prices. And because he has figured this out, because he's discovered this, he was able to blackmail a kind of low-level official into sending him some. And so tomorrow morning, there is now going to be a special at Quark's, groat cakes covered in syrup of squill. Now, really, the the point of all of this is not to make me say squill like 25 times, though that has been a side (laughs) effect of this. But the point of all of this is that Quark is a hero and his audience is super into this story about this like blackmail, this extortion that he uh, he does here. That is to say, until Dax, Bashir and O'Brien show up fresh from a reconnaissance mission into Cardassian space. And now everyone crowds around their table and just leaves Quark standing all alone And Quark looks dejected here. And Odo explains that they're heroes. The Starfleet officers here are heroes. And there's just not anything heroic about earning profit. 
But right, of course, right for Quark, there is right on Franginar. Earning profit is heroic. And ultimately, that is what this episode is going to be about. It's going to be about heroism. But I actually do think that it is worth pausing here and maybe setting aside the humor of this scene, though it is meant to be funny. But set that aside and to talk seriously about why Quark's acquisition of of food for everyone is not heroic, but a reconnaissance mission is. What's the contrast here? You know, I think the thing that is hard for me to get behind as a premise of of the episode is, you know, as we've often said on air, the Fringy are a very interesting, um, a very interesting history and track in terms of how they were conceived and what ended up happening with them and um, how much we owe to Armin Shimmerman um, and Quark for uh, what they have become. But, you know, we refer to them as a um, an alien race that is a stand in for unfettered capitalism. And looking at the ways in which quests for profit without uh, a morality attached to it have really tangibly harmed people, especially in the the last year, this episode was a little bit, it was hard for me to get behind the premise almost. And I wonder if this is how you read it, of like almost as like capitalism as heroism. And that being said, if we're going to talk about ways in which people interacting within a capitalist system are heroic, certainly it is, you know, the people working hard to to bring us food um, that I would put at, at the top of that. Um, I guess I'm going to have to make a food chain pun here um, in terms in terms of heroism. And so I think you immediately make an excellent point that's really worth thinking about. The episode is definitely suggesting that there is a type of military heroism that is the peak of heroism, and especially because it's set in the context of, you know, the sixth season, the Dominion Wars. Um, So they are operating off of, I think, a pretty contextually narrow definition of what a hero is. Though to borrow the language of the last year, like, I don't know if we, I don't, do we count Quark is like like an essential worker, like a frontline worker here. Um, like, is he is he bringing joy to people through syrup of squill and and risking his life to feed people and bring them joy? Like, it's just really hard for me to attribute heroism when the goal for Quark and for Ferengi is always just to get more money out of. Right. I think that's the key ingredient for calling someone a hero or not is, did you sacrifice, right? Did you give something up? And and how great was that sacrifice? And, and, and I guess that's really what I found interesting about the way that this is set up here is that the contrast that Odo makes is kind of apples and oranges here. And so it doesn't actually highlight the sacrifice, right? It highlights just the fact that they're in completely different spheres. Because I think that there is something that Quark could have done here that would have been heroic, that we would have deemed heroic. And that would have been to give this stuff away to people, to give the syrup of squill to people for free. But that's not what he's doing. In fact, although we don't ever actually like see a menu with a price on it, he does make this kind of snide remark about how the pancake breakfast in the morning is only going to be open to those who can afford the exorbitant prices, right? He's going to price gouge this because he's got all there is. And so, yeah, it's not heroic at all. It's predatory. But I do think that if he had given this away, right, if he had gotten this insider knowledge, used it to get this this syrup of squill, and then just given that away to people, that that would be 
heroic. I, I'm not sure maybe it would still qualify in quite the same way that Dax, Bashir, and O'Brien jeopardizing their lives for this recon mission would qualify as heroic, though I might actually even draw that distinction only because Syrup of Squill is very clearly just like a luxury item. Like it's not like actually like these people are not starving, right? It's not like he's just brought in like, you know, uh, bushels of grain for people who are starving or something like that, that, that would, I think, be tantamount to that, that would really be saving people's lives. But I just wanted us to pause and think about this because I do think that so often we equate heroism with danger. And I think that that is such a, a narrow and limited way of thinking about heroism, right? That it's a really about sacrifice of, of any kind, I think, can be heroic. Right. And I think we could spend a lot of time talking about different definitions of heroism and whether or not they have to inherently involve sacrifice, because other qualities of heroism that I think would be commonly attributed to the word would be um, somebody who does something really courageous, somebody who uses their strength to perform in impressive feats, um, somebody who achieves something um, that is, again, really impressive or miraculous or outstanding, somebody who's uh, does that through, you know, use, uses strength of, of mind or body to achieve something um, grand, right? Um, and I think more of, of courage, I guess, rather than sacrifice, though we could talk about how those two might be connected. And while there, the Ferengi can definitely employ a lot of ingenuity, um, which would have been, I think, a, an interesting other lens to make this episode through, <laughs> Um of like cunning, um, because the fraying can definitely be cunning. I don't. I guess I just don't understand even this premise of needing the Ferengi to be heroes. Like, what is driving Quark? Are we supposed to believe that Quark has some sort of insecurity about not being heroic enough? Because it really, in this setup, just seems like his ego has been threatened, right? That like, <laughs> he's getting a lot of, he even says like, he's getting all this attention because he's making this grand speech and the, the episode opens with him like really entertaining everybody, right? And then our Starfleet characters walk in and he's just annoyed that he stopped getting attention. He even says they stole my audience. Like that's why he's upset. Um, so it, it feels more like a, I just want people to look at me um, and I just want to be like the center of everything and heroes seem to be that right now. So I guess I'll be a hero. Then it is like, oh, I really want to achieve something impressive for the greater good. <laughs> right. Yeah. Quirk is such a complicated character. He might actually secretly not really care about profit as much as he acts like he does. He might really be a lot more of a narcissist and just want the attention, want to be the center of attention. And where he has found that is in criminal enterprises and also owning the casino, you know, on, on the on the space station here. But I think, I think you raise a good point, which is really that we should get into the next bit of this teaser, really kind of the next scene here, where we're going to get, well, number one, I guess, the, the the setup, like what is actually the heroic thing that Quark and some other Ferengi are going to go do. But then also we're going to get some dialogue there that I think will give us a bit of insight into what it is that motivates Quark to make the kind of key decision that he makes here. So off screen, Quark takes a call from the Nagus. And now when we come back on screen here, he's re reporting to Rom, his brother, he's reporting what the call was about. And what's happening is that Quark's mother has been taken prisoner by the Dominion, and so the Nagus wants Quark to rescue her. 
And this is actually the beat that the teaser ends on. It's the, the dramatic tension that is going to get us to come back from the commercials. But this scene really just continues after the credits. So I think we'll just carry on ourselves. And so what we get is Quark explaining to Rom that, uh, hey, uh, the Nagus and our mother, they're, they're in a secret relationship. Mom is also, you know, basically secretly running the Ferengi state. And that because of this, she was able to travel off of Ferenginar, even though that is something that is normally forbidden to women. And that is actually what she was doing when she was captured by the Dominion. She was, you know, in a spaceship off world because she was traveling to Vulcan for some cosmetic surgery. And I do have questions about all of that, but what really matters is that Quark wants Rom to go with him to rescue their mother. Now, Rom has what I think is a really excellent idea, which is to get some mercenaries to do this for them, right? Klingons, Nausicans, Breen, but Quark insists that they can do this with just Ferengi, right? He insists that Ferengi can be just as heroic as anyone else. They just need the opportunity, the training, and some financial incentive. And so what they have to do now is assemble a team of Ferengi to stage this rescue operation. And, and that's what we're going to get next. But I want to pause here because I do have questions. I also want to talk about the location of this scene. But before we even get to that or to my questions, l let's bring this back to what we were just talking about, right? Because here is where we get Quark seeming really to feel like his whole species or maybe his whole culture is the better way to put that has been insulted by Odo, right? That Odo has just accused all Ferengi of, of just like not having heroism at all as a value. And Quark seems like he really is intent on proving Odo wrong. I mean, that's a bold statement coming from a person who is of an alien race that is causing the Dominion Wars, <laughs> um, right? Like, uh, interesting, interesting choice there, Odo. Though, of course, like we always, you know, I do love a, a nice little Odo Quark setup. Um, I think those characters play so nicely off of each other. Their relationship is so wonderful um, on and off screen. But again, I, it's really hard for me to read this this scene, I think, in maybe the generous way that you are suggesting that I read it of like trying to prove a kind of wholesome point about what Ferengi can be <laughs> um, and that they are not limited to one set of attributes. First of all, because they, as we see them on screen all the time, <laughs> they are limited to one set of attributes. As we see them in this episode, they are really i mean i think rom is actually rom and nog are the way better uh characters here to talk about heroism and like different ways of being ferengi those episodes that focus on that end up i think hitting this point way better rom and nog don't really serve that function in this episode but when quark is like no we're gonna do it ourselves it really just it feels a little emotionally immature. If he, he feels like he's being a little childish. Like, no, we're going to do it ourselves because I have a point to prove about how I'm great because uh, Starfleet interrupted my speech about Serp of Squill. Like, <laughs> it, it feels, it doesn't feel as as weighty or serious as, as maybe Glenn, you're suggesting that we could look at it to me. Yeah, there's a lot going on here with the setup. I mean, for one, right, this is a Ferengi episode, and I think we've alluded to and joked about the fact that that means this is a funny episode. It means it's it's essentially driven by and for the, the humor, that there's a silliness to this that is the point of the episode. It's a lighthearted episode. And so what gets downplayed in this episode is anything about the fact that Moogie... <laughs> 
is being held by the Dominion, that right. she's like in danger, right? So the very idea that Quark would would say, you know what? Instead of hiring professionals to go rescue our mother, who's a prisoner of war right now, uh, we're going to do it ourselves just so I can prove a point to Odo, who doesn't even know that I'm trying to prove a point and like I, who I may never even tell about this. Right. That's that seems a little bit ludicrous. But for the episode to work. Right. It's you know, we have to downplay. We have to downplay that. Right. I think you make a good point here in, in sort of even questioning the the sort of goodness, the kind of virtue, I guess, of Quark's motives here that do seem a little bit like, you know, a temper tantrum. Yeah. And also, he doesn't care about getting his mother back. And we've seen this established in many other episodes. Quark really doesn't have a lot of affection. In fact, he ha- seems to have a lot of resentment and anger. Um at his mother, particularly for being um, a liberated woman, right? Rom is the one who is really supportive of of Moogie as a character. Um, so hard to even say that. <laughs> Did the word Moogie. Um, but I just really, I'm not seeing anything in this episode where Quark is actually motivated by care for her. He's only motivated by winning the Neguses or keeping the Neguses approval and the 50 bars of gold press latinum of the profit. Like he doesn't want to hire mercenaries because he's being emotionally immature and doesn't want to pay more money. Like I'm, I'm not sure how, how much Quark would be affected. I think he would be very much like, whatever. Okay. The dominion have her. Like, I don't, I don't know if he cares that much. Yeah, so Quark's relationship with uh, Ishka is her actual name, so we can we can <laughs> avoid you. saying Moogie anymore. Because yeah, it's hard. The thing with Moogie is that it's hard not to say it the way Rom does, and no one no one wants to hear us do no, that. No, no. <laughs> but right, Quark has real complicated relationships with his mother. He's also got a pretty complicated relationship with Rom. And although nothing in the script, right, nothing in the dialogue is spelling out any of that dynamic here, I think that Quark. You know, we know, right? Quark is the older brother. And I think Quark really has a lot of personality traits of an an oldest child whose relationship with his one surviving parent is dominated by a sense of duty rather than uh, a sense of of love or feelings of duty rather than feelings of love. So I think that it matters very much to him to rescue his mother here. And not only because, and maybe not even at all because of the reward and because, you know, the Nagus, the head of the Ferengi Alliance has given him this, you know, I don't know, mission here. I think that even without those things, Quark would want to go rescue his mother, but that it would be motivated by a sense of duty, not a sense of love and not maybe even like an actual fear for her in ways that we see Rom as the younger child uh, kind of infantilized, actually frequently infantilized, I think would describe Rom who loves his mother and wants to help her and wants to save her. But I think Quark's motivation is kind of a negative motivation in the sense that he's motivated by failing in his duty, right? He's worried about what will happen if he fails to do something, what people will say about him. Yeah. Which again is very egocentric. I I would say again that you've, You've pointed to the fact that it's about Quark's ego and not about Quark's sense of duty. Like, I don't even know if duty is the right word here. Again, he doesn't feel motivated by that to me. He feels motivated by, like, the perception of others and what he stands to gain, whether that's financial um, or or in terms of his image. And, yeah, the, w- the ways that Ram is infantilized are very problematic because – 
you know, he's the more empathetic character. He is a character who shows ingenuity in in ways that break societal norms. Um, he's the pro-labor and pro-union character, right? <laughs> like, Rom has a bunch of really amazing stuff going on. Um, and and that he gets infantilized is, is quite a shame. And then Quark, you know, one of the amazing things about him as a character is that we are kind of constantly doubting his true motivations or his inner world, right? Like how much of Quark is he, is playing the part of a Ferengi who cares about profit, but really does have a sense of, of duty or, you know, really does care about his mother um, and just knows that showmanship is is the way to, to, you know, maintain his bar or his position or his friendships. Like, we just don't get to know. But what we see Quark play the role of all the time, and then definitely in this episode, is the petulant child. This whole conversation has really just led me down this path of daydreaming about a, uh, a Star Trek novel about Quark that's, you know, highly modernist in its, uh, in its stylings and really zooms in on the fact that, like, Quark is in all sorts of inner turmoil all the time because all he's ever really wanted to do is be, you know, an actor uh, on stage. He's always just wanted to perform on Broadway, but uh, his whole culture and the fact that he's the oldest child and so on have, have forced him into this life of uh, having to run a bar and having to pretend to love profit more than he actually does and so on. I, I wish someone would write that novel for me. I mean, if we're taking the narrative, the, the again, the, the very, I think, generous here narrative um, that like, you know, hurt people hurt people and that Cork is suffering his own internal pain and that's the place from which he is enacting his misogyny um, against his mother and um, his, you know, uh, willingness to harm people uh, in an attempt to turn a profit in various instances. I mean, yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot that could be done there. Um, may- maybe I want to be Quark's therapist. <laughs> <laughs> I look. I would watch that TV show. I would 100 percent watch that TV show. Also, maybe I don't. You know. <laughs> also, maybe I don't. Well, there is thinking even of of different types of heroism here, and and wanting to think about Quark's relationship with his mother, because I think Quark's relationship with his mother is actually really quite defined by his relationship with his father, who we never meet. He's he's dead as the series begins, but Quark is someone who idolizes his father, who thinks of his father as a hero because he was this amazing, you know, business person. And right, that's the whole point of this episode or the inciting incident of this episode is that Quark's values as a Ferengi are that making a ton of money is heroic and he idolizes his father for having been good at that. But he eventually learns that his father was terrible at that, was kind of dim-witted and that his mother was in fact the brains behind that operation. And so Quark very recently, like within, uh, within the story, storyline of Deep Space Nine, Quark discovers this and it shatters his whole worldview. And I think even shatters some of his identity and also, I think, and also I think shatters his belief in Ferengi culture. And that does manifest as being a real jerk to his mom. But I think Quark is in turmoil. He's a character in turmoil. We just don't see it as much. Because the, the oppressive systems that exist on Franginar harm everyone, <laughs> including Quark, right? Um, he was not um, conditioned in a world that um, allowed him to believe certain things about his mother based on gender. And that kind of um, also forced his father into probably like a role that didn't suit him or his personality. Um, that's all 
you know, been internalized uh, and is now coming out in very toxic ways all the time with Quark. <laughs> right. Well, here, here's where I have some questions about Ferengi here, right, that we learn in this, this the, whole, the whole setup for this operation. One is that apparently, like, they just don't have doctors on Ferenginar, or at least not, like, cosmetic surgeons, because Ishka's got to go all the way to Vulcan in order to get this cosmetic surgery done, this ear lift done. But also... I guess the Ferengi don't have a military. Like there's no there's no equivalent to Starfleet for the Ferengi. Like the Nagus is not a commander in chief of a military, so he can't send in commandos to rescue his girlfriend. He's got to contract that out to just private private parties here, right? So, you know, in the, you know, long tradition of monocultures out in space that we get on Star Trek, like we're really doubling down on that with the Ferengi here where, yeah, like Quark's, all of Quark's life choices have been severely constrained that it wouldn't even have been possible for him to grow up to be a doctor or, you know, be a soldier if he wanted to do that because those things just don't even exist on Ferenginar. It's fascinating to think about. It makes sense to me that um, on Ferenginar, there would be, um, this this problem where uh, you get so used to paying other people to do certain things that you stop developing the ability to to do that thing your own right on your own in your own culture. Um, they definitely seem like the kind of society that would you say you know we don't need that because we'll just pay so and so to do it or maybe even we could think about the way in which. Ferengi society is is likely hyper individualistic too, right? Of like, well, if you need that thing done, then you need to use your your capitalism based cunning to like figure out a way to get that done, um, and that's on you. So those could be interesting background kind of cultural explanations for that. But I think there could be a lot more here, right? So first of all. Women on Franginar have a lot of limitations, and maybe they're not allowed to get cosmetic surgery on Franginar. Um, or maybe if they wanted to do something like that, they would have to be naked the entire time. And as we know, um, Ishka wears clothing. Maybe Vulcan is just the place where stuff is better, right? Like there are um, locations in our contemporary world on Earth that have reputations for cosmetic surgery um, that people travel to. But that doesn't mean that cosmetic surgery isn't available near them, right? It's just in terms of quality. And she's, you know, the Nagus is, she's basically the secret Nagus. So I'm assuming right. she can pick <laughs> the most elite place to go get this thing done. Or maybe it was just for privacy reasons that she wanted to go somewhere else, you know, I think there could be a lot of explanations for that. Well, I think one of the explanations for this is simply that it's it's funny to have the aliens on this show who have crazy ears go to the original Star Trek crazy ear alien planet, Vulcan, right, to get to get an ear lift. I think that's sort of how they arrived at Vulcan must be the destination where one goes to get cosmetic surgery on ears. I hadn't thought about that, but that is very interesting. <laughs> um, I guess you could have gone to to Romulus, but I see why there would be barriers to doing right. that. <laughs> I think it is interesting to, you know, I, again, I'm all for like, let let Moogie do what Moogie wants with her body. But like, I'm not sure how I feel about the the choice to go get cosmetic surgery in the middle of a war. <laughs> 
Right. I mean, this is how she gets captured in the first place. I think we have to imagine that the capturing of the ship that she was on happened inside Federation territory. So, you know, of course, they, the writers are, are needing to come up with, you know, all of the premise here of like well, how, why she's captured, how she's captured and so on. And so they have to embed all of that in just this dialogue here. But like that's they have to have her in Federation space. And so why is she there? And it has to be a silly reason because this is supposed to be a silly episode. But I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you. Not a wise choice, I don't think. So speaking of choices, I want to talk about the location of this scene, like where this conversation is all happening. It's it's all filmed while Quark and Rom are crawling through, I don't know, whatever the Cardassian equivalent of Jeffrey's tubes are, right? They're just crawling through these maintenance shafts. And that's a really strange choice to me. It was just filmed in a weird way. And then they just accidentally end up in Cisco's office while Cisco is just in there. He's just sitting at his desk. And that also was just like, you know, a continuation of the weirdness. This scene in particular is really weird. Like, it's just like a weird angle from which to see his office, like from the floor in the corner, looking up at him was, was very strange. And also like, he's just at his desk. He's just looking at something on his screen. And I have paused on this many times and I'm pretty sure he's actually just watching baseball. You are doing some serious uh, Odo level investigative <laughs> work here. Um, I guess I didn't fixate on this detail quite so much. <laughs> um, and in not doing so, what I took from it maybe was that like, I don't know, it's just a scene that's like, well, Rom is an engineer now. So here he is doing an engineering thing. Um, that's where you would find Rom if you needed to talk to him in the middle of his workday. No, no, I'm totally with you there. It was just a weird choice to me, I thought, to actually do a kind of walk and talk scene, except that they're crawling through a shaft. It was just staged in a in a weird way, but it's, it's not even a complaint. It just just all struck me as kind of funny. And also, you know, just the whole idea of like, what does Cisco do when he's alone in his, in his office does seem to be watch baseball, which I'm 100% behind. But uh, yeah, we can push on because <laughs> what we need to do now that we have decided that uh, we're going to go rescue Ishka ourselves, uh, is to put a band together, right? We got to get the team. We have to assemble our team. And we start with Nog. And of course, right, this is obvious to go get Nog. He's, in, he's family. But there is some some tension here. I think some nice tension where he says that he can't go with them because he's a Starfleet officer now. And Quark actually gets him to change his mind. And he does this by offering him the same title that Worf has. And just the idea that Nog really admires Worf, that he like looks up to Worf and kind of wants to be Worf in some way is pretty hilarious to me because I'm not sure that Worf is the role model I would pick for anyone. Yeah, there's a lot of things. I think we have to hand wave a lot in this episode. <laughs> I think we yeah, do a lot yeah. of hand waving just for what is meant to be comedic effect, because it also doesn't make any sense to me. It feels like Nog could get kicked out of Starfleet for doing this, right? Like this feels like it's something he's probably really genuinely legally not allowed to do. Yeah, I have a lot of questions about how leave works in Starfleet, like just generally speaking, but then especially during a war, like he's got to ask permission to get time off of work to be gone for several days to go into enemy territory to treat with the enemy. <laughs> yeah, it does. This, it, this is literally treason, actually. It's literally treason for not to be doing this. But, you know, that's OK. It's going to be fine. Well, at any rate, we still need to get some more people on the team. And so next up is Lek. Lek is a professional eliminator, which is to say a hitman. And he doesn't care about Latin. He's not motivated by by greed, by by money, but he is very much into the challenge of rescuing somebody from the Dominion. And so he's in. 
And then finally, or, you know, sort of finally, anyway, is Quark's cousin, Gala. And they have to get Gala out of a Federation jail on a starbase somewhere. We've actually met this character before. That was back in season five. And Quark is paying his fine to get him out of jail. But as far as we can tell, that is really all that Gala has to offer. It's, it's simply that, you know, he's available, right? Like an Eliminator makes sense. Nog makes sense. Gala, you know, the only thing he's got going for him is that he's available to, to, to go with them on this mission. But hey, you know, I'm sure that will be fine. So this scene or this sort of montage of scenes, this is a pretty standard way of assembling a team for like a, a type of heist movie, right? Like, you know, Ocean's Eleven, Dirty Dozen, that sort of thing. And I have to say, I really love this scene. I love heist movies a, a lot. And this trope is one of my favorite aspects of it. I always love these montages. So this here just kind of sang to me, but I, I wonder how it all worked for you, Valerie. I don't I don't think this is going to surprise anybody that like that's not the kind of movie I typically watch. I've never even seen Ocean's Eleven, um, but I know enough of it culturally to understand they're trying to rob something. Um, and there is a team of them, probably 11 people, I'm assuming. <laughs> yeah, you've got it. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> and George Clooney is there. That's the extent of my knowledge <laughs> um, about that. I do, though, think it's something kind of fun um, to watch the team be assembled and um, it's just nice. It has a flow and a movement and you get to kind of step into little different pe characters' lives and different moments that are being called back to. And the, and the main thing with this with this episode, which is called The Magnificent Ferengi, is it's referencing The Magnificent Seven, right? Which is a remake of The Seven Samurai. But they do this, um, the numbers thing, they're like holding up the hand to show right. this is how many people are now on the team. Um, and I think that... Uh, the, the people who worked on the episode said that otherwise the plot has nothing to do with any of those movies. Um, we're just going to like do this super iconic thing and then name the episode after it. I don't know. People say things when they're making art and I, I don't always know if I can trust. But. No, no, no. It's totally true. I, I didn't even bother to rewatch The Magnificent Seven to do this episode, though. I was compelled to. And, you know, frankly, if we didn't have a kid, I would have because I would have had the time for it. But and, and because I really love that movie and I'm a big fan of Westerns. There's another shot in this episode that is kind of taken directly from The Magnificent Seven, which is one of the you know greatest Westerns of all time. But yeah, otherwise, no, the plot has nothing to do with it. And it is much more like one of these uh, one of these heist movies for sure. And I don't fault you, Valerie, for gravitating towards, you know, the George Clooney version of Ocean's Eleven. But, you know, that also was a remake. There's the original version with uh, Vic Fontaine in that role or, or not Vic Fontaine. I'm sorry. Frank Sinatra is who I mean. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> yeah. Uh, just a Fontanian slip there. Right. <laughs> um, well, thank you for pointing that out. I did not know that. I have a very, um, what I have seen and what I haven't seen is very strange. I haven't seen almost anything, but then I've seen several very obscure and specific things for no reason. And, you know, the biggest way that I'm familiar with uh, Westerns is not only Spectre of the Gun from TOS, which I think <laughs> is an amazing episode, yeah. um, but also through Spaghetti Westerns, um, as right. they are called, because of my uh, my past life as an Italian historian. And I actually really enjoyed um, teaching and, and learning about Italian film. Um, so so those films were really fun. And I can get behind a Western. All I really hear you saying, Valerie, is that uh, you and I need to start a Western podcast. I, 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 gu I guess. <laughs> I, is that, I'm, 
That's a thing you could have heard me say. <laughs> that was one of the options. I don't know if it's what I said, but I, I'd do it. Um, there would be a, a lot of learning there. And I'd get to know some really, really great um, canonical films, I'm sure. But I did want to point out something I really, really love about the team that is being assembled here, which is that it includes Jeffrey Combs. Right. Yeah, we need to get there. So it is time now to get another trope of the heist movie, and that is the explanation of the plan scene, which is also done just really excellently here. Nog has some schematics and he's going through the plan, but the whole thing is just derailed from the start by Nog's insistence that he is in charge and that everyone should call him sir. He's really trying to make uh, the people here act like this is Starfleet and it's totally not working, which, you know, Anyone could have told him, though this depiction of Nog here really resonates with my experience in the military. And I think everyone goes through something like this the first time they're uh, promoted to some kind of position where they're in charge of people is that you start uh, emulating uh, all of the people that you've seen be in charge and it never really quite goes well. And that's clearly what Nog is doing here. So I really liked that. But as you say, Valerie, what actually matters is that as they are bickering or you know, squabbling, that's actually the word that Quark uses. Liquidator Brunt shows up. And yeah, this is Jeffrey Combs. Jeffrey Combs in one of his many Star Trek roles. Of course, right here on Deep Space Nine, he plays Wayun. And Brunt has been a recurring character. He's a real nemesis of Quark's. He's actually not a liquidator anymore because Quark, I don't know, he won in their last encounter, essentially. But Brunt thinks that if he helps rescue Ishka, if he helps rescue Ishka, he'll, he'll be reinstated by the Nagus. Nobody likes Brunt, though, but he has a ship and they need a ship in order to get where they're going. So he's on the team now. And yeah, it is so, so good to see Jeffrey Combs in this role. And I think especially so shortly after we just did an extremely Wayun centric episode, because because if I didn't know, I just don't know that there's any way I could figure out that that's the same human being playing both of those people. They're just so totally different characters. Oh, I could tell immediately, but in the best way, <laughs> but in the best way, because like I and this is going to come up when we meet Iggy Pop later. Um, I think that I just like I think I just really like Jeffrey Combs, I guess. I, I don't know. <laughs> I think whenever he plays a character, I'm just so behind it. I think he has such a unique energy. There's just something about him that I am very drawn to on the screen. And so I could tell it was him immediately. And at the same time, I guess if you weren't, <laughs> I, oh, I'm painting myself here as like intimately familiar with the energy that Jeffrey Combs emits on screen. <laughs> oh, there's a lot um, happening here. <laughs> but if you weren't familiar with that energy as I am, <laughs> um, you, I mean, it's not like super obvious in terms of looks or mannerisms like that it is the same person. He does such a good job embodying a different character. And he's my favorite Ferengi in this episode, by and large. And it's probably just because I'm predisposed to like a character that that Jeffrey Combs plays. You know, I also really love Shran um, over on Enterprise. So and I do love Wayun. That being said, apparently everybody hates a liquidator <laughs> and he's not a very likable character, though I'm not sure how many Fringy are like super likable characters <laughs> to, to begin with. And, you know, with what's going on with Nog um, in the scene where he's you know training everybody, there is a very interesting moment. I forget who says it to him where someone says he's become such a soldier. Um, I think it might be Quark. And it's said in a, in a condescending manner, which is also interesting given the 
premise of this episode, <laughs> that we are trying to be heroes in the way of, of military heroes. Um, but it is another uh, data point in our quest to understand, is Starfleet a military <laughs> <laughs> or not? Yeah, well, Deep Space Nine is solidly in the camp of, oh yeah, def- definitely. And I think it's fair to say that just Star Trek in general is now that we don't need to have a big discourse on a new Star Trek at this point. We do have, you know, we're, we're, we're going to be doing some new Trek uh, coming up. Although, speaking of new Trek, to my knowledge, although there are three seasons of new Star Trek that I have not watched yet, though that's that's all going to be rectified fairly soon. But to my knowledge, right, Jeffrey Combs has not appeared on any of the new Star Trek shows yet, and and that seems criminal to me. Oh, interesting. I hadn't thought about that. No, not to my knowledge either. And you would think I would know because of my ability to pick up Jeffrey Combs' energy right. um, in the world <laughs> that I that I just named. So it would be very embarrassing for me if he has, in fact, appeared on some track that I have watched. I haven't finished all of the first season of Lower Decks, the the uh, the new animated show. Uh-huh. So I guess he could show up there um, in, in voice anyway. And also, to my knowledge, we don't have Ferengi. I, I don't recall seeing any Ferengi in new track. Um, at all either, which would, I guess, make sense for Discovery because we don't know the Ferengi yet. Um, But I don't recall seeing them in Picard either. That being said, I think Doug Jones is the new Jeffrey Combs. That's my pitch. I think we should give him multiple roles as multiple different aliens. I think he could do it. Yeah. Or, you know, what I really want is just to see Doug Jones and Jeffrey Combs hang out together. And maybe we could invite them to a party we're throwing and it would be totally fine and not at all weird. Yeah, that would be totally normal. I'll send the invite and I'll be like, this is going to be totally normal. You should totally come. And I think it will definitely attract their attention and they will show up at my apartment. Yeah, the only way we're going to get them to come to our party is if we've got a really amazing cocktail menu. So we need to get to work on that right away. (laughs) All right. Well, we still have not actually gotten the plan yet. And that is because there's going to be a change in plan. So first, before any of that, we get a a training scene in the hollow suite. Uh, Our magnificent Ferengi, they're, they're storming the Dominion prison to rescue Ishka, but it is not going well. Quark is despondent again, and there's no way, he knows that there's no way they're going to be able to pull this off. But Rom has a really great idea. Again, he says, they're going about this the wrong way. They're not commandos, right? Frankie are not commandos. They're negotiators, and they should really be playing to their strengths here. So the Dominion has something they want, and what that means is that they need to get their hands on something the Dominion wants so that they can make a trade. And here, as promised earlier in the episode, here is where Keevan comes in. And we did Rocks and Shoals already. We did that recently. It was part of this same episode co- commission. Uh, that is where the Vorta Keevan becomes a Federation prisoner. And Kira and Cisco have arranged for Quark to exchange Keevan for Ishka. And I think this is a really great move here, a really great turn, because it lets the Ferengi be heroic on their own terms, though we're going to see how that actually works out. But I have to say, I'm hyper skeptical that the Federation would let Keevan go like this. So, you know, we could wave our hands at this as you know we do, but I also think that we could play a little game and we could actually wonder about, and I'm just going to ask you, Valerie, what you think is going on behind the scenes here. Like, what is the Federation actually going to get out of this that we just don't ever find out about? 
I don't know. I think my headcanon just like skipped the part where they got Federation permission and decided that that made no sense to me. So it must be <laughs> that they did it without the Federation's knowledge. Um, and like, it just, cause it just does not seem like a thing that they would allow. And, and we're here in season six of Deep Space Nine. We're not paying attention to rules um, right. <laughs> or a lot of, you know, morality um and ethics you know and and cisco's pretty pissed at keevan i think um in a lot of ways following rocks and trolls um so maybe he just doesn't care all that much and is just like whatever i'm busy and i'm exhausted and burnt out and i have to go post another one of these lists of everyone who has died so just like leave me alone quark and do whatever you want I, i really don't think it's more complicated than that if we're going to believe that this was actually greenlit in the first place and and so I like where you're going there. And that would make a lot of sense if Keevan were still just like sitting around in security on Deep Space Nine, but he's not. They have to get him from Earth. They have to bring him from Earth back to Deep Space Nine. So and like so we're told Cisco had to like call in favors to get this to get this done. So like he's gotta be getting something out of this. He has to have pitched this to the Federation, like to his his superiors, his chain of command in some way that they're getting something out of it. We don't get any of that here in the episode. So I don't know. I don't have an answer to my question either, but I kind of want to envision that like the Negas personally sort of owes something to the Federation. Uh, or you know, like Maybe even the Ferengi are actually potentially useful to the Federation uh, in this war, uh, being able to uh, bring in weapons or some other types of supplies that they might need or something like that. That that's the deal that's actually been made, you know, off off screen here, off off camera that we don't get. Which again is like that's a whole episode or a whole I don't know novel about the Dominion War that I would I would check out for sure. It doesn't sit well with me that Cisco would agree let alone pull in favors to make it happen to send somebody to his death basically i mean that's what he knows he's doing by giving keevan back to the dominion and i guess that's one of those like you know morally questionable things you do if you really need the person who is functionally the nagus um on your side and for for some reason right um that a low level clone uh isn't going to be as important to you but it really feels like it violates Federation morality to basically rob Keevan of his, I guess, asylum? We're only nine episodes away from In the Pale Moonlight, where, right, Cisco does make all of these choices and, and slowly, you know, goes down that path, right? We watch him do it step by step. But yeah, I guess the un, unfilmed scenes of this episode that I'm envisioning here are actually something akin to In the Pale Moonlight, where Cisco says, I can send this man to his death. And in doing so, I can bring the Ferengi into the war on our side. So I'm making this deal, even though that's not the the morality of the Federation. I'm making this deal anyway, because we need the Ferengi on our side. Yeah. And a lot of people let it happen, right? They sent him from Earth. I will say, I actually really like, I don't like Keevan as a, um, you know, as a person. <laughs> um, I don't like, think he's like a good guy. Right. But I do really enjoy watching him on screen. I think he's a really really effective Vorta really embodies that Vorta energy the same way that the Jeffrey Combs does and his, uh, his sarcasm and his indifference um, and his, his cunning, his slyness. I, I really do enjoy watching just in just the ways he's just exasperated with Frankie all episode, but in a very like, it's like, he's just 
depressed all the time or something. He's got this like very like Eeyore kind of vibe to him as a Vorta. And I, I find it actually really funny and engaging. This will be seriously contrasted by, again, Iggy Pop right. <laughs> as a Vorta, which is a choice that makes no sense to me. Uh, but we'll get there. Yeah, well, let's let's continue on. So the, the deal is this, right? They're going to make the exchange on Empak Noor, which is an abandoned Cardassian space station. It's of the exact same design and, and layout as Deep Space Nine, uh, which itself used to be called Terak Noor. And this is going to be a great place for the exchange because it is familiar, right? Our, our, our main characters are, are going to know where everything is. It's also great because Nog has been there before. Uh, this happened in the episode called Empak Noor. That's also from the fifth season. Also, you know, it's great because the producers can just use the regular sets for the episode. So really it's convenient for everybody on every level. So when they get there, they set up in the infirmary and they wait for the arrival of the Dominion ship with Ishka. And we get some really interesting world building details here. First, even though all these Ferengi have joined the mission for a share of a reward that the Nagus is offering, they still will not take any action without being paid extra for it. I mean, like any action, not even just the act of going from the airlock to the infirmary. Quark has to pay them extra just to like do the thing, to go to the infirmary, to walk down a freaking corridor. And this does not seem to be a good way to do things. I mean, even from the perspective of the Ferengi who are, you know, going to like get this money, going to get their reward, because it means that the person in charge, Quark, is incentivized to take as few actions as possible because that maximizes his profits. But that then means that, you know, going out of your way to take as few actions as possible, that ultimately, right, might jeopardize the success of the mission and then result in everybody dying and, you know, nobody getting the reward at all. So it seems like a terrible system that does not even facilitate greed, right? At some point, I guess what I'm trying to say is that at some point, even greed and self-interest actually benefit from some cooperation. But that is just like not what we see here at all. I, I don't think very much about this plan makes sense to me. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Yeah, fair enough. Well, the other thing that we learn here is that the Vorta are indeed, uh, as we had speculated before, are indeed supposed to kill themselves rather than be taken prisoner. And right, we did know this already from covering that seventh season episode, Treachery, Faith in the Great River. And, and where we were speculating about this is when we did Rocks and Shoals, because Keevan does not kill himself there. And that's right what we learn here. And it's clear that this, I think, is the episode where the writers invent this because it's important for Keevan's character that he does not want to be handed over to the Dominion because they're going to torture him to death. I guess, you know, they're, what we're starting to kind of say about Kevin is that it's almost as if he's a he's a prop, right? He's like a, and then literally later becomes a prop um, <laughs> in, in, this, in this episode. And there's something about it that is, I think, you know, meant to serve the, comedic effect and maybe we're just not meant to have much compassion for for Vorta and for Kevin in particular but it's I don't know he plays his his uh persistent depressive disorder very well because <laughs> um I, I feel quite sad for him and the way his literal life is being used as a prop yeah, there's a lot of depth to the performance here and the portrayal of Kevin. I like that you called him Eeyore earlier because he does come off like that. It's just like, I'm just having a sad day. Everything sucks. I suck. It all sucks. I hate Ferengi. They suck. Everything is just terrible. And it's a really interesting way to play this because the other choice or another choice, I think the one that I 
would make, uh, you know, maybe less as an actor and actually perhaps more as a, a writer, if I were thinking of this character, that I would be thinking in terms of like panic and fear. But that's just not the way Keevan is responding here, where he clearly doesn't want to be here. He does not want to die. He knows that that's going to happen. He wants to escape if he can. And he is is clearly going along here, still thinking that there you know, is a chance that things will work out in his favor, that he'll he'll be able to get away. And in fact, he nearly does, right? He's actually able to slip away from the group when they're all sleeping. Uh, Galef was, you know, supposed to be guarding him, but he fell asleep. Something we all saw coming, of course. But Quark had the foresight to get Rom to disable the ship for, you know, precisely this eventuality. And so they find Keevan just sitting on the inoperable ship. And it's really exactly at this moment that the Dominion shows up. And so it is time to make that trade except that the frankie all just run and hide in the infirmary and and they're really scared to see all the Jemhadar who have shown up but eventually they come around to realizing that they asked the dominion to come here and you know brunt says that yeah everything's actually going according to plan so why are we afraid and that was a bit of comedy that i think really actually quite worked for me though keevan is also here right as the eeyore and continues to tell them that the dominion is just going to kill them all so this is all just useless and they should just give up now. But Quark does go out onto the promenade. He's going to negotiate with the Vorta, who's come with all these Jem'Hadar, and also with Ishka, who's here on the promenade. But what really, really, really matters, something we've, we've mentioned before, right, is that this Vorta, uh, this Vorta's name is Yelgren, by the way, but that doesn't matter because he's he's Iggy Pop. <laughs> it's Iggy Pop. And I have been really into Iggy Pop at, eh, you know, several different moments in my life. So this is super exciting for me. I, I wonder, Valerie, is Iggy Pop a cameo that that really matters to you? No, not at all. <laughs> um, <laughs> but but I, I certainly wasn't I, I think it's fun because to me it just makes like no sense <laughs> especially because like star trek isn't a show that like you know uh celebrities are like clamoring to like get guest spots on um i i guess the rock was in an episode <laughs> of voyager uh, i'm not sure if he did that out of like fandom or I, I don't know maybe voyager was just pretty popular at the time and it seemed like a good idea I think what actually I didn't recognize him as Iggy Pop, but when I was watching the episode, I was like, why did they cast this guy as a Vorta? This is the worst Vorta I've ever seen. Like he's, um, you know, the Vorta really have this kind of like soft spoken kind of um, quality to them because they're supposed to, I think, be a little bit delicate, right? Like they don't get their hands dirty. Um, the Jem'Hadar do that. The Jem'Hadar are the more aggressive counterpoint to the really soft-spoken, kind of heady and removed um, and almost like erudite Vorta, right? And Iggy Pop just like features and voice doesn't really fit that as a description. So I was just struck by what was going on with the casting here and then looked it up and saw that it was Iggy Pop. And I was like, huh, this makes even le less sense to me now. <laughs> um, I'm not sure what's happening. I also wonder if under all that Vorta makeup, people would have recognized him at the time. Right. Well, I, I certainly would have. So there's some really interesting backstory about how Iggy Pop wound up in this episode. He was actually supposed to play the character of Grady in uh, Past Tense, uh, which is an episode that you and I have talked about on one of our season Survivor episodes. It's, a, you know, this pair of episodes that we really love about these um, essentially, you know, uh, 
homeless camps in the the Bay Area, and he was going to play the character of Grady there, but the scheduling just didn't work out, and so that fell through. And so they were able to get him for this, but I think nobody was maybe quite satisfied with this fit, right? The idea of Iggy Pop playing a Vorta, because as you say, he just doesn't have uh, the same voice, the same kind of mannerisms that we see Wayun and Kievan doing, right? Both of those characters are slimy. They're snakes. They're sociopaths. Maybe all the forts are kind of sociopaths, but they're sociopaths who want to convince you that they're nice guys, right? That they're they're civilized and and cultured and they're they're nice and smooth. And that is not what Iggy Pop is doing here at all. Yelgren is a sociopath who knows it, knows you know it, and thinks the whole thing is kind of funny. And he's just very direct and very frank. Yeah, and he's he definitely he's playing his annoyance differently. I mean, the Vorta do always seem annoyed in that like, who dare to bother me? Like in my study, <laughs> yes. kind of like annoyed. But he's this just like literally, what are you doing? Why are you annoying me? Kind of like different uh portrayal of, of that. And it's it's fun in some ways. It was just really striking. I I I think I'm glad that Iggy Pop ended up here as opposed to Grady um, because I can't really see him in that role either Um, though he would have been more identifiable as Iggy Pop because Grady was a human yeah it's just that Iris Stephen Bear wanted Iggy Pop on the show right yeah I wonder how Iggy Pop feels about this (laughs) I, I don't I don't know did you recognize him on screen I did recognize him. I did not see this episode when it aired, uh, because this is actually when I was uh, still in some of my army training. So I would have had to have watched this close to a year after the fact I would have caught it. And that actually was one of the phases where I was fairly into Iggy Pop, uh, listening to Iggy and the Stooges a lot. And uh, so I did totally recognize him at that at that point and was really quite excited about it. And, um, and I actually really liked the performance. I think it adds some depth and some richness to the idea of like, who the Vorta are and what they're about. But yeah, I mean, like Yelgren is basically the Vorta equivalent of Chief O'Brien. Like he's kind of grumpy. I do love later when he's talking to to Moogie and Moogie's trying to sell him like supplements for a shinier (laughs) head or something like that. And he's like, oh, that's very interesting. But, you know, I'm going to have to murder you if uh, we don't speed this along. And it's like he both convinces me that he is kind of interested um, (laughs) and that he will murder her. Like um, and he he. Yeah, you're right. He's playing the the sociopathy uh, in in a different way. And it, it does actually enrich the portrayal of the Vorta. It was just striking, striking at first. And just hard not to mention. How many more times can we say Iggy Pop? Oh, I mean, we've got a few more times in us, I think, but we, we can move on a little bit here. So Cork has some demands for, for Yelgren in order to make this trade. And essentially, he just wants to make sure that they're not double-crossed. And so he wants the Jem'Hadar to get back on their ship and just you know, warp out of here. And that's going to leave Yelgren and then two Jem'Hadar bodyguards stranded on the station for a few days. And only at that point then will Quark hand over Kievan because it will be safe for them to leave. Now, right, of course, the Jem'Hadar at this moment could just storm the infirmary and get Kievan. But Quark says that if they do that, then the Ferengi will kill Kievan just so that the Dominion can't have him. And of course, right, the Dominion very definitely want Kievan back alive. And so Yelgren agrees to this. So now we're back in the infirmary where the Ferengi are celebrating their good fortune and they're waiting for the Jem'Hadar to get off the station. But uh, now we're coming to the point where, yeah, 
It's the exact plot of Weekend at Bernie's. Quark has been this whole time lying to the other Ferengi about how much reward money there's going to be from the Nagus. And he's been doing this so that he and Rom can keep most of it for themselves. But the thing is, Rom knows this. And you can't trust Rom to not accidentally give away secrets. And, you know, he does. And when he does, the other Ferengi are really upset. And Gala tries to shoot Quark, but he misses and shoots Kievan instead. And so now they don't have anything to trade for Ishka. And also, there's just absolutely no incentive for Yelgren not to have them all killed. So what options do they have? And Quark says that it's time to make a stand. It's time to be heroes. It's time to fight to get Ishka back. It's actually a pretty rousing speech or, well, okay, maybe it's not, but it's attempting to be. And we get another trope here, right, where each of the Ferengi decide that Quark is right and that they're going to make the stand and fight instead of trying to run away and, you know, each of them for, for different reasons. But it all turns out to be totally unnecessary because Nog has accidentally discovered a much more Ferengi-friendly way to do this. You see, they could just use a neural stimulator thing to control the muscles in Kievan's corpse so they can get him to walk a short distance. So they're going to try to scam Yelgren. That's what they're going to do here. That's the heroic thing they're going to do. So there's a tense moment of exchange when it's clear that something is not right with Kievan. And then it's clear that the Frangi are, are up to something, that they are trying to scam him. But the Frangi have not actually been trying to get away with this, it turns out. What they've been doing is simply trying to get Ishka out of the way so that they can kill these two Jem'Hadar soldiers. And they pull this off. They, they, they manage to do this. And so in the end, they have rescued Ishka. Uh, they're all still alive. And now they also have another Vorta prisoner to give to the Federation. And that's it. They're, they're heroes. And uh, it feels good to be a hero. <laughs> and yeah, so right, this plot here, this is crazy. Uh, I will say that <laughs> <laughs> this whole business with the dead Kievan is why I was so harsh on this episode when we did our season Survivor for this, uh, for this season, where we, you know, assessed the whole season, really. But in my memory of this episode, I will say this was all a much larger part of the, the show than it actually is. I had thought this whole weekend at Bernie's business was like half the episode, and it turns out it's not even a quarter of it. It's actually really just this one scene very near the end, and it also was not as silly as I remembered it being, and so I actually really wound up not just enjoying this episode that I had been pretty harsh on, but actually kind of enjoying this scene that had been the, at the core of my harshness to begin with. Yeah, you you were very attached to calling it Weekend at Bernie's, even though that to me, like, wasn't the thing that took up a lot of space in the episode. But I was just letting you have it. You know, Um, you see you seem to enjoy that. Um, Yeah, I mean, the whole I did kind of enjoy um, Nog as like doctoring is the same as engineering. (laughs) Um, And I think we might even get like some sort of line in this episode that's like, I'm an engineer, not a doctor or something like that. Um, But, uh, you know, it's silly. Yeah, that's a word that, that we can use for it. I think that, again, unintentionally, they've done something really sad um, when they were trying to play for the comedy, or at least, you know, sadness is what I was struck by um, because one, we're using somebody who was really afraid about being put to his death and tortured as this like a prop. And so mocking death when we've kind of talked about how, how serious death is. Um, and in the context of this war, it feels like, 
you know, the the context of all of this doesn't make it a fun weekend at Bernie's, right? Um, I, I think that like that he is dead is is much more present to me in the story and less something that I'm able to like hand wave away. And you also get this this line uh, where Iggy Pop um, says like, oh, what have they done to him? When they see um, Kevin, who I almost just called Wayun, when they see Kevin <laughs> walking, um, you know, robotically, strangely down the corridor. And to me, that was just like actually super depressing. If you think about it in the context of you're you're getting a, um, I don't know if we can call Kevin a prisoner of war here. I, I guess technically he is, but in his own weird way, he also kind of defected. But anyway, um, everybody knows we're in a war. And to me, this feels like trauma, like Iggy Pop is interpreting what has happened as that the Federation has tortured Keevan um, and that this is the result of that. And it just it sucked all the funny out of the scene for me. Yeah, that's an, a really excellent point. And, and I think that is something that I really appreciate that Iggy Pop brings to this scene that I think just would have been delivered differently if this had been Wayun you know, who had shown up here or really any other Vorta that we've seen that there's like a, a, a gravitas to that reaction. I mean, maybe not gravitas, a sincerity to that reaction, like a, a rawness, you know, frankness, I guess is what I used earlier, but I think rawness is, is, is really what we see on display there. And of course the dominion does not know that Kevin essentially defected, that he engineered the circumstances under which he was going to be captured so that he wouldn't have to keep going back out into the war and that he could just sit comfortably in a Federation prison, which I think we all assume, and I think definitely Yelgren assumed, is kind of like a nice hotel uh, compared to what, you know, Dominion or Cardassian or, you know, Klingon or Romulan prisons are are going to be like. Uh, but the Dominion does not know that he did that. They're, you know, if they get him back, if if they were to get him back, they would have found that out. Um, and I think that's one of the things that Kevin's really afraid of, right? That perhaps that 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 his interrogation, his debriefing, would turn to torture as they discover that he essentially defected and also presumably gave up a lot of secrets. And that's what he's really terrified of. But it's interesting to see Yelgren's reaction then because Kevin's expectation, right, is just that he's going to be tortured. But Yelgren seems really disturbed that the Federation has done this to Kevin, even though it seems like that's something that's going to happen at their own hands anyway. And that's, I guess that's all kind of a complicated emotional response. Yeah, and it's really, really played for laughs, especially as we um, exit the episode and exit the scene where we again see um, the, you know, dead <laughs> um, robot-controlled malfunctioning Keevan just repeatedly walking into a wall. And I guess that will just happen forever until the batteries run out because they killed everybody else on the station and now they're leaving. Um, yeah, and there's also the interesting bit, too, at the end where Quark asks... Rom, you know, how it feels to be a hero. And I think there's supposed to be some sort of like brotherly love there. But again, it had this like ah, ha, 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 quality to it that um, didn't really make sense. Like I felt that there was more heaviness to the episode than that than maybe they intended there to be because it was just supposed to be fun. You also mentioned that, um, 
you know, you can't tell Rom anything. He'll spill the secret. Um, I actually wonder if we could have a a, a behind the scenes novel for Rom where <laughs> Ferengi society has trapped him into having to play the fool, but he is actually, you know, quite intelligent and aware. And we know that Rom is um, pro workers rights, right? Um, and equitable compensation, which is very different than most Ferengi. So perhaps he again is using the mask of the fool um, to actually ensure that everybody gets paid properly and that Quark doesn't hoard as much profit. That would be interesting as a backstory, right? Yeah, I love this reading. I don't think this was the right moment to do that. In fact, definitively, we know it was the wrong moment to do that because that's what led to the whole plan uh, falling apart there. But I love this idea of Ram as like this actual mastermind who who planned to do this the whole time so that everybody got got paid equally. But you're right, Ram is actually quite brilliant. He's an excellent engineer. He's also just an extremely warm and caring and sincere person. And, you know, even if we can take this at face value, then his real flaw is just that he's not good at lying. And is that really a flaw? Like, right? Is it really, you know, a virtue we want to be promoting, like being good at lying as a type of virtue? No, I don't think so. And uh, and so, yeah, I think that's a really fun reading of, of Ram there. And thinking about Rom, I think this is a, a pretty good moment to uh, transition into some big picture discussion points that we want to make because we, we've come to the end of this entire batch of, of three episodes that we received as a, a commission from one of our Patreon supporters. And, and I guess first, I just want to pause again and say thank you so much for that. This was an extremely generous way to support the show. Also give us some really excellent and, and also really good variety of episodes to cover. Yeah, these are things that I wouldn't have noticed before. I don't even know if I would have noticed like Kevin reappearing, um, you know, as a character who was earlier in the season. Um, so it's really drawn my attention uh, to how certain things on this show are tied together in a way that's been very interesting. My my opinion on the Magnificent Frankie has already shifted a little bit. So thank you for that. Yeah, these connections are awesome, right? Because it's not just that these three episodes were good in themselves. It's that it's that there's this pair of, you know, through lines that link them all together. One of them is Frankie, the other is Vorta. And yeah, we thought it would be a good idea to finish this batch of episodes up with some discussion of these species as we get them in these episodes. And I, I guess since we're talking about Rom right now, let's start with the Frangi. The Ferengi are not in all three of these episodes. We get them in this one, obviously, but then also in Treachery, Faith, and the Great River. And in, in both of these cases, they're using their business skills for something that is, is actually helpful, something that's actually useful. And I was surprised by that. I do think that one one cool thing that we get to see about the Ferengi is um, almost this like coming to their own self-awareness of what their true strengths are, right? And how they don't have to fit into the the heroism um, or the rule book or the way of doing things that, that other people expect, and certainly not that the Federation expect, um, but that they can really tap into their unique Ferengi strengths for the greater good, right? That's cool. I'm interested in that. I think it's much more effective in Treachery Faith and the Great River than it is in the Magnificent Ferengi because at least there's some sort of like uh, 
greater good or use that I can get behind. So it's a little bit funnier. I, and, you know, I'm not hanging out with Frankie the entire time and get to learn this detail about some guy that likes taking pictures at captain's desks. Um, and that's real fun. <laughs> Whereas here, as I've already said, you know, I'm not as sold by the motivation, but as a what are our strengths and, you know, do we have strengths uh, and how do we operate in this world with them at the forefront? It is a really cool thing to explore. I also, I, I think that I would have enjoyed The Magnificent Frangie more if I also had recently watched The Magnificent Seven, because Trek does like to give us these episodes that are very, very much just like riffing off of a genre. And if you don't get the inside joke, then you don't get the inside joke. Right. I mean, like literally next on our recording schedule is Elementary Dear Data, where like we're just right. going to be talking about Sherlock Holmes for, you know, an hour. Yeah. So, I, but you, so I'm with you there that I do think that a lot of the, the humor in this episode that they're going for is this kind of self-aware, self-referential humor where they're just trying to tell a story within a genre. It's a story that almost has to exist in a parallel universe to the rest of this season in order for it to work on an emotional level. Because because otherwise, all we see is the things that you just pointed out, Valerie, about how the horrible fate of, of Keevan and all these other people is played for laughs rather than played for the sort of emotional intensity that it's all played for in Rocks and Shoals, an episode that, of course, we both really loved and, and really quite moved us. We had a hard time even uh, finishing that episode, really, because it was so in, intense to do. But I do like that the Ferengi here, even in this episode, right, get to use their strengths. We get to see that these people who are scoundrels, the people who are greedy and will do anything to, you know, cut costs and increase their profits and don't treat people well, essentially all sorts of like, you know, human rights and uh, labor uh, violations, right, that, that, that they engage in, that this is what they do, also piracy and so on. But they, they have skills that actually could be useful in a number of, of circumstances. And so it's not just that they're this kind of comedic punching bag for the Federation, right? But that the writers of Deep Space Nine are are trying to take this imaginary culture that was conceived of as just being a comedic foil or just a, a villain, right? As as they appear in in early Next Generation, and actually interrogate that culture and think about it seriously. And I think, as you're right, in Treachery, Faith, and the Great River, to especially show us Nog actually being extremely useful and to give us the the kind of contrast with Chief O'Brien's sort of stubbornness. And lack of people skills and to show a way where where Nog is extremely useful in that in that situation. And we get that here with the Ferengi. Again, in fact, Nog also is, you know, comes up accidentally with this technological um solution here. But here it's really Rom who says there are things we're actually good at and let's use those skills and see if we can get out of here. And and something that we actually get in this episode along these lines is that Yelgren actually seems to admire the Ferengi. He calls them cunning, which you you called them that earlier, Valerie, but Yelgren says cunning. He says that they're they're pretty good at these negotiations. And he says that he looks forward to the day when the Ferengi will take their place in the Dominion. Now, when he says that it's a threat, but I do think he also really means it as a compliment. And if we take it at face value, if we take that actually as a compliment, I, I wonder what you think the Dominion would do to make use of Ferengi. Would they change 
Ferengi culture to suit their needs? Or would they let the Ferengi just continue going about their business, but then use some Ferengi individuals as like the Dominion, you know, has needs for? Or or would something else happen? I mean, my first thought is that they would, their their ingenuity and their cunning would um, be be put to dominion ends, right? Um, to use these powers of uh, manipulation and finagling uh, to to help with high and low level kind of acquisition um, of things. I think what's difficult is that the Ferengi are um, silly, right? Um, fallible, bumbling. And I'm not sure the Dominion would be able to put up with that, right? Like, when something goes right for a Ferengi, it feels a lot like it happened by chance and despite a lot of error um, and strange comedic missteps. And that doesn't seem to me like something the Dominion would put up with um, <laughs> uh, or or really feel comfortable relying on, right? And this is what's so interesting to me about the Ferengi because, you know, they were originally conceived of as a villain um, and even though many of their uh, qualities that came to be comedic were part of their original conception. This is something Armin Shimmerman has talked about. It's like, I didn't know how to take what I was told in the script about the qualities of of the Ferengi and make them actually threatening. Um, that was like nearly impossible to do. And Armin Shimmerman was was one of the, the first Ferengi on screen. Um, he played a Ferengi in the last outpost um, over on The Next Generation. And, and then you really get you get them used primarily for comedic effect, although we get a little bit more depth sometimes with Quark and Rom. And it ends up just making us either laugh at the Ferengi themselves in a way that always feels a little condescending and uncomfortable to me, or laugh at the people that the Ferengi are manipulating, which also feels uncomfortable to me. So I don't know, The Domin maybe what I'm trying to say is the Dominion seem like some pretty serious people, and we're we're not told that Frangi are very serious. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe the real use for the Frangi in uh, in the Dominion is actually as a kind of hilarious reality TV show. <laughs> like they'd actually be kind of the entertainment, the sort of slapstick entertainment. But yeah, I mean, your point is is well taken, right? That that it is hard to take the Frangi seriously because we've been told over and over again not to take the Frangi seriously because they are buffoons they're clowns right they're they're here to be laughed at except when the writers want to do something different and give us an episode where you know they're meant to be taken seriously like this one which still has a lot of a lot of humor in it and a lot of humor that actually really quite worked for me we didn't really talk all that much about uh, about the jokes but i did actually appreciate the the humor in this particular episode but if we take them seriously and and i think we often do take the frangi seriously off screen, right? Then we hear about all these things that they do, actually, including the incident that really opens up this episode. This thing that Quark has done to get syrup of squill is actually pretty savvy. We don't see it in operation. We only hear about it. And that seems to be the case with all of the like, true Ferengi exploits is that they all happen off screen. So we only hear about them. But those Ferengi, those off screen Ferengi, are really good, not just at negotiation and, you know, the glad handing and smooth talking and so on, but also really good at logistics and, and planning. And that seems like that's a, a skill set that's extremely useful to a state that uh, takes up uh, literally one quarter of the entire galaxy and, you know, is trying to conquer another quarter of it right now. 
as track lovers and audience members, we see that the Ferengi are or at least can be more of kind of more than the sum of the parts that we're we're seeing on screen and we do all this dancing to try to to build out the world to allow for that that vision of Ferengi. It's just maybe I often find that the on-screen presentation is they're just kind of characters of themselves in a way that for me as I've said often feels uncomfortable or sometimes even kind of sad or cruel um but but that being said I think that the kind of um more physical comedy that uh the Frangie bring to this episode is just not my particular brand of comedy I know that Armin Shimmerman has you know really didn't like Profit and Lace um, and has spoken about that, but really did like this episode and felt that he just got to be on set kind of chewing up the scenery with all these really other great comedic actors. And it was really fun for him. So maybe it's just not my brand of comedy. Well, because these actors are nailing it, right? These guys are actually all really great. And it is really fun from a performance standpoint. And then, of course, to get Iggy Pop as the kind of foil to all of that. This guy is just like super serious and uh, almost like unblinking. And uh, to get that contrasted with uh, the, you know, the slapstick comedy of the Ferengi actually, I think works pretty well, just from like an enjoyment of the performances standpoint. But speaking of Iggy Pop, we do also want to talk about Vorta here now that we've had, in fact, three episodes with Vorta in them. We have learned a lot about their origins and about their relationship with the founders, but I think it's also become clear in ways that maybe it, it, it wasn't to me before by, by watching all three of these episodes, these Vorta episodes in a row and, and talking so much about them. It's become clear to me that the Vorta essentially are the Dominion. They seem to fill like every possible executive and administrative role, carrying out sometimes like, really vague instructions, actually, from the, the founders. And we see them running the entire war, right? That's Wayun. But we also see them acting as a platoon leader, which is way, 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 way far down the org chart from running the entire war. And if that is true, then there must actually be tens of millions of Vorta in these positions, all of them cloned, all of them made in labs, essentially, and then sent out to fill these roles. And I just don't think I ever noticed that before or thought about it on that type of a scale. And I found that really fascinating. Yeah, it's almost as if you end up feeling like the Vorta are Cylons, you know, like (laughs) that there's, I forget how many there are of those, but like seven or 12 or something like that, a pretty low number. Um, (laughs) And that's, that's like kind of how I conceived uh, of the Vorta Um, that there's, there's just a couple of them and they get cloned and replicated a lot um, such that there might be very many actual individual Vorta in the world, but we just see the same couple of ones over and over, which is also probably why Iggy Pop was so alarming. Cause I was like, what another one? <laughs> like there, there are only two, right. Um, that we're just kind of reproducing and remanufacturing in some way. But I think I, I'd be very interested. I'm really not trying to be a downer. Um, I love deep space nine. I love the performances by um, Aaron Eisenberg and Armin Shimmerman and Jeffrey Combs. I have a lot of fun with this stuff. And also, the Vorta make me sad. I, don't, I wonder if, if listeners also feel sad. I think there's something about um, p- 
people who are enacting oppression and are also themselves impre- oppressed um, and s- stuck in that position that just makes me sad. And I think that applies to the Vorta. <laughs> because their origin story and the way that they serve the Dominion and then all the harm that they enact in the universe, I don't know. It's just, it's hard for me. It feels really heavy and complicated. So I, I wonder what you think of that, Glenn, and and if listeners feel like that's the primary emotion that they get when they watch um, these two, these, these with Frangie and the Vorta on screen. But I, I think another thing that would be cool to explore more with the Vorta or to know more about or a thing that I would read about is the Vorta's observance of of religion or spirituality or devotion to their gods, the founders, as a compare and contrast with Bajorans and the prophets. Religion has been one of the through lines actually in these episodes as as well, right? I mean, it's literally in the title of one of them, right? We get faith in the title. And we talked about it when we did that episode. And I do think that actually there's an entire, at least, you know, really solid academic article that could be written about that comparison, if not an entire monograph. In fact, I, you know, there, there's definitely a, a monograph, an academic monograph, scholarly book that could be written about religion in Star Trek uh, and, and maybe thinking about the Vorta and the Bajorans as kind of like the anchor or the, the centerpiece of that. Uh, you know, if I had time, if I were a professor of religious studies somewhere, I think that would be my research agenda, though that might be why I'm not a professor of religious studies somewhere. I, I, I think you should pursue your dream, Glenn. <laughs> Well, I do think that there's a lot more, actually, that we could say both about Vorta and Frangi, but also about Bajorans uh, in these episodes. And so I would like to invite listeners to come do that with us. But before we leave this episode behind, we do also need a cocktail. Definitely going to need a cocktail. And I have no idea what you're going to make other than that it probably involves syrup of squill, which <laughs> we we didn't talk about earlier, but... I can't figure out what's going on with syrup of squill. I I know that um, it's a reference to something uh, in in the 1934 uh, comedy. It's a gift, which I'd never heard of before looking this up. Um, But also when you Google it, it seems to maybe be a real thing that is included in some kind of botanical um, encyclopedias. I'm confused, but there's probably some squill syrup in whatever you've made. Yeah, I mean, I'm just calling the drink syrup of squill, and it is just going to be syrup. So yeah, whatever squill might actually be in our real world here in Star Trek, it very clearly is some kind of of plant that grows on you know a world that is not Earth, uh, and that also is very clearly, I think, outside of the Federation, given the sort of economic behavior that their agricultural consortium is engaging in. And you put it on pancakes. So it's basically maple syrup, right? Except it's space maple syrup. And so that's what I'm making here syrup of squill. And so, although it's not going to be the biggest ingredient, the kind of most important ingredient is that we're just going to use maple syrup in this drink, which is actually a thing that I really love to use in cocktails. So we're going to use one part of grade A dark maple syrup. You really want like the darkest maple syrup you can get, not a a sort of amber or light maple syrup. Then you're going to have two parts of bourbon. You can use any bourbon that you want. I think that getting one that's either pretty heavy on a vanilla or a caramel palette would work well with uh, the maple syrup. Then you're going to use a half part of 
brandy. You can use here again, any kind of brandy that you want. You might even actually enjoy using an apple brandy here. If you do that though, just go ahead and use Applejack, which is pretty inexpensive. You don't need to use the much more expensive and better uh, Calvados from, from Normandy. You don't need to do the imported uh, apple brandy unless you live in Normandy. And then, yeah, definitely use that. And actually, I guess in that case, getting the maple syrup is the real problem. But then the, <laughs> but then the last ingredient here is, is going to be Angostura bitters, which you can just do to taste. This is going to provide a little bit of cinnamon. And basically what we're getting here is an alcoholic maple syrup, essentially. And you can you know put as much cinnamon as you like with your maple syrup uh, in there in the form of the Angostura bitters. And look, if you want to put this over pancakes, you can do that too. Yeah, I I suddenly had the thought. I was like, can you put butter in a cocktail? <laughs> they put it in coffee. Could that work out here? Do we need like a fat? Um, interesting. It's also, I really want to know, like, why aren't we saying syrup of maple? Right. Syrup of agave? Or why aren't they saying squill syrup? I'm very interested in the naming of syrups. In the syrup naming, um, but this drink sounds delicious. I mean, you, you can't you can't argue with uh, brandy, bourbon, maple, and cinnamon. Like, who's going to be like, no, thank you to that? Yeah, I mean, it is a dessert cocktail, which I think this is the first time we've done a dessert cocktail on the show ever. Even though that's like a pretty big genre of cocktails, is dessert cocktails. Yeah, and you love them. You love to make them. I do. You do not, which I think is perhaps why we don't normally no, make very no, many. No, of I them. do not. And thank you for not putting Frangelico in this. <laughs> thank you. I never need to drink Frangelico again. <laughs> oh, I was I was sorely tempted. In fact, I think if I were making this drink just for me, I would have gone in maybe a slightly different direction. And in fact, you can make a version of this cocktail. You can make a cocktail that has maple syrup in it and make it not be a dessert cocktail. And to do that, you just want to balance the sweetness actually with something that is is kind of spicy, perhaps. Maybe you would use rye instead of the the bourbon, maybe a different type of bitters and, and so on. And, and I would maybe use even a type of nut liqueur in there. Maybe not actually Frangelico, but uh, uh, maybe a type of walnut liqueur with some extra spice or something in it if you want to make that drink. And so, uh, yeah, Valerie's objection got us two cocktails this episode. So I think on that note, I think that is going to do it for this one. I'm Glenn McDormand. And I'm Valerie Hoagland, the person that was just told uh, they would not be subjected to Frangelico and then was subjected to Frangelico. (laughs) Um, Thank you so, so much to our commissioner for this episode and for the string of episodes that it was part of. Really, really fun to do. Yeah, this was really so awesome. I got so much out of doing each of these episodes, but especially in doing all of them in order. And honestly, not least of which was the fact that my wife watched all of these episodes with me and we just had a lot of great conversations, you know, making breakfast together about these episodes uh, that she had never seen before and watched out of order, never having seen any of Deep Space Nine uh, or, you know, this late into the Deep Space Nine arc before was uh, also a lot of fun for me. So thank you so much for that. Thank you so much for the support. And other listeners, if you're interested in commissioning an episode of your own, or you can nominate one to the patron ballot, please get in touch with us at any of our social media accounts, or you can email us at claytemplemedia at gmail.com. We would love to do that for you. Yes, please come on over to our forum, uh, claytemplemedia.com or our Reddit um, under the same name. We would I would love to hear, one, how you feel about Frangelico, and two, if Ferengi and Vorta also make you sad. It's possible that I'm just a little sad. <laughs> um, we we are, you know, 
after the year mark of this global pandemic. Um, so maybe that's what's happening. So maybe what I'm really saying is if you're sad too, come talk to me on the forum. And until then, stay spacey.